Hello, you're listening to a new episode of The Water Scientists, the podcast of KWR Water Research Institute, in which we get to the bottom of difficult water questions. My name is Tim. And I'm Andrew, and in this episode, we ask Ina Fatoman, researcher on water distribution networks and hydroinformatics, the question, how can we make water systems smarter worldwide? Welcome, Ina. Well, thank you. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Tim. It's really nice to be here. Yeah, well, let's get off and start with, uh, with the question of smart. Um, it can be understood in different, different ways, I, uh, I imagine. And I believe that in past research, your colleagues used the, the metaphor of a smart body and nervous system. Uh, what do you mean when you say that a water distribution network is smart? Well, it's a really good uh, first question, Andrew. When uh, we say we want to make water systems smarter, uh, we mean that we want to use data, hardware, software, and human intelligence, of course, to improve the design, control, and operation of these systems. And if we focus a bit more on water distribution networks themselves, we believe that a smart network is a network that performs well now and in the foreseeable future. And by performing well, we mean it delivers fresh and clean water to all users during the more normal, regular days, but also during more extreme days or circumstances, like very dry periods or when part of the system fails, like a pipe failure, uh, and that both now and in the future, as I said. And a network can only do that if it has a healthy, lean, and strong body, just like us, uh, designed to cope with uncertainties. And that's why we talk about designing and, of course, maintaining as well a smart body for a water distribution network. And when designing this, uh, this body, we can also think about the different parts the body needs to play. So uh, we have, for instance, a loop structure that is responsible for the reliability of the system. And then the last part connecting this loop structure to the customers itself can be branched, uh, designed in a branched way to ensure water quality. And this is about the body, but he also talked about the nervous system. And this is something we thought about because a smart network for us is also able to tell us what is going on inside of it. Like our body can tell us if we're feeling good or if we're tired or if something hurts. So we want a network to be able to do that as well. So we need to add a nervous system to the network. Mm -hmm. And we can do that by adding sensors, like pressure sensors or flow meters or water quality sensors. And it's information gathered by these sensors that provides data to water utilities. Mm -hmm. And if the water utilities know what is going on inside of the network, then they can make smarter decisions. Okay, so the, se the second part, the, the um, nervous system, is also used in the design phase um, to, make the, to make the solutions more smart. And you mentioned, for example, that the, the layout of that critical last mile, so the distribution network, that you can optimize that or... Uh, improve that based on the on the nervous on the nervous system or on the information side. Is that what you mean? Uh, you can see a little bit like that. Yeah, you can design both this uh, looped part for reliability and this last part uh, for water quality. So it, it's it's branched. And of course, if you know, um, if you take the sensor locations into account in the design as well. Um, it's better to see if you are meeting the good pressure and flow requirements in the network or the water quality uh, requirements, mm -hmm. or you could see if, um, you could also think about where you put valves in the network Yeah. that you can uh, control is where you are opening or closing a valve. If you think about that in the design, you can more make your system more reliable as well. I've also heard that you and your colleagues have developed a numerical optimization tool for helping network modelers to design networks and to decide on where to place sensors. 
Could you tell us a little, a little more about these techniques and how it can be used to make water networks smarter? Yes, of course. Um, well, we have, of course, this philosophy about the design of a smart body in a nervous system, but it's quite a challenging task to translate that into the design you should implement in, in, in real life because it involves large and complex network models with thousands of nodes and pipes and different, sometimes conflicting, constraints and objectives. For instance, water utilities want to know as much about the performance of their network as possible. But because sensors are expensive, you can't put sensors everywhere, so you need to make choices. So there's a trade-off between what you can invest in the network and how much de detailed information you will get out of it. Mm -hmm. So when solving these problems by hand, as done so far by most water utilities, is very difficult, even for experienced hydraulic modelers. It's very time-consuming. And it often leads to one solution that is okay, mm -hmm. but it's not, or it might not be the optimal solution. And an alternative way is to use optimization techniques to solve these type of problems. And these techniques uh, allow us to explore thousands and thousands of different solutions, which are okay, combine them, compare them, uh, make small alterations, and by doing so in an iterative and automatic way, so you repeat this process over and over and over, you mm -hmm. move forward towards solutions that are increasingly performing better, and this, well, you move for towards an optimized solution. It's a bit like natural evolution, like the evolution of species. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. And with, the, and with those, you know, well, they're, so they're large and complex systems, um, but computers are getting better, and... Uh, yes. um, so one, one trend or hot topic that comes to mind when you talk about these complex systems and, and optimization um, is that of uh, digital twins. Um, and I've heard, also heard this uh, from colleagues, something that, uh, that's often mentioned. Could you tell us some more about um, the developments in this area and particularly those which are of relevance to water utilities and water managers worldwide? Um, what are the main opportunities and threats or, or barriers for innovation mm -hmm. on, that, on that area? Well, digital twins are indeed a very hot topic. You hear it everywhere. Um, well, you see it applied to uh, very different fields like airplanes or tomato crops. Or I saw an example last about uh, a digital twin to see how a human body reacts to sugar. And I thought, this, this is amazing. Um, and in the context of water distribution networks, we understand a digital twin to be a hydraulic model that describes what is actually happening in the real network at a given moment. And this means that this hydraulic model is responsive to all sorts of factors from the environment and the world around it, like the weather, or if it's a vacation period or a lockdown due to COVID. And in that sense, it's different from the hydraulic model that the water utilities use now, which is very static. So the water utilities now have models that represent an average day or a peak day. But as you can imagine, we are not behaving every day according to that average. So if it's Monday, maybe you go to work. If it's Saturday, you will stay in bed for longer. If it's very hot, you will fill a swimming pool for your kids. And in the network itself, a lot is happening as well. Pipes are getting older, so their performance degrades a bit. Um, and maybe the water utility is doing some maintenance work and is closing some valves in the system. And that also alters the hydraulic part of the entire network. So and with a digital twin, we can bring all of this information together, feed it, feed the network model, and assess how it is actually performing under all of these circumstances. And if water utilities have a good digital twin, and they can compare it with what they're seeing in the, the real twin, so what's underground, 
they uh, can detect anomalies, for instance. Uh, if, there's, if there's a difference between the real twin and the digital twin, then something is going on. Or your digital twin is not well calibrated, that can be, of course, an issue. Or if that's not the case, and maybe something is going on under the ground that you can't see, like a leakage. Um, but it should be a bit more than that. It should also be a two-way street. So mm -hmm. the, the, the nice part sh should be that a digital twin can also well, feed or interact with the real twin. So if you could uh, automate uh, valve operations or, or your pumping stations, the digital twin could, could help the real twin to adapt to, to conditions, and that, that should be very interesting. Mm -hmm. And there's another opportunity, uh, because now I focus a bit on real time, uh, but you could also use digital twins for scenario studies or for training purposes. And in that case, you wouldn't feed it with real-time data, but with scenarios you can think about. And this provides information on how the system would react in different situations mm -hmm. and helps the hydraulic modelers or the utilities to prepare for these situations. It's like a sort of playground they can just play with and, well, try out different solutions or different ways to operate the system. Mm -hmm. And you also asked about the, what the barriers can, uh, can be for implementation. Yeah. Um, and I would say the availability, or, or better said, the lack of data can, can be an issue um, because digital twins are very data hungry. We need to feed a lot of data that is well available and of good quality. And for instance, last year we used uh, data from mobile phones mm -hmm. uh, to estimate where people are in a city mm -hmm. um, and from that information estimate well if they're not at home they can't be taking a shower at home so to estimate the real water demand at that moment uh, in time um, and this year we wanted to use the same approach and the same data to understand the effects of the lockdown on water demand and on the performance of the network but unfortunately, due to privacy concerns, these data are not available anymore. So now we need to think about an alternative way of doing so. Yeah. But it's really a struggle. So yeah, yeah. exactly. Lack With of privacy. data. Yeah, lack of uh, data. But it's also nice to hear, maybe we'll talk about that later, but it's nice to hear it's not just a future image or something that could be possible in the future. It's something that you're working on and you're, you're, yes. you're also working on these barriers. So, but we'll talk about that uh, in a bit. Uh, you've used the metaphor of the smart network as a sort of human body with a, a nervous system and a physical me metabolism. Um, but that human body also exists in a context. In, in a context, mm -hmm. um, in like for example, a human body and then in society or something like that. So we've looked at um, uh, data on the on, from the, the water network itself, but um, with the whole Internet of Things. Um, trend, you see accelerated digitization in other sectors and uh, it's interesting to consider how water and water data might be combined with data from other sources um, to provide added value or new applications. Um, have you thought about this? Are there some opportunities you might like to mention? Um, I think we can use the same example of the digital twin for this. Mm -hmm. um, so. One of the key aspects, as I was saying before, is to uh, well accurately model the water demand in the network at all the different customer points. And ideally, you would have digital water meters installed at every house. Mm -hmm. But that's not the case uh, in the Netherlands and not in many other countries in the world. We are not there yet. So you need to find an alternative way to know this water demand and to estimate it. Mm -hmm. And that means you need to know uh, the behavior of people, but also to know where they are because if they're not at home, they can't be use water at home. If they're at work, they will use water there. And 
all of the data that can tell us something about that is useful. So data from traffic or use of public transport or energy consumption or the mobile phone data can tell us a bit about this. And this is normally data you won't associate with water, mm -hmm. but it's very useful in the water sector. Uh, and you could use it the other way around as well. Imagine you would have digital water meters. From that information, you could maybe um, improve models about uh, transport uh, and uh, yes, and people's behaviors because you would see when they use effectively use water. Yeah. Um, another example that I would like to mention is, for instance, in the uh, city of Valencia in Spain, they have um, a digital twin. They are quite ahead. Uh, in that regard, and they have also digital water meters installed everywhere in the network. And they use this data not only to feed the digital twin, but also to um, watch out on older people living alone. So oh. uh, if, for instance, there is no water use for a, a given period, mm -hmm. the water utility will alert the municipality to check on that person. Oh, yeah. So in this case, it's like water data being used for a social purpose. Okay. Oh, that's very interesting. And and on that behavior side of things, so you can see how people are behaving in their houses. And then you can also, the other way around, you said you can also use it, use it like a, maybe perhaps a sort of agent-based modeling. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, bringing different types of data um, together. Um, so are you also working on these sort of techniques? And what sort of, uh, yeah, what sort of problems do you, do you um, come up against in your research? And maybe how are you working to solve those problems? Well, this is a very, uh, a very interesting technique. I find it very funny <laughs> um, because it's, it's agent-based modeling. What you do is you model the individuals or the agents mm -hmm. like just people in a city. And then it's easier to understand what you're doing because you're modeling every individual person or household at the micro level. So when does he get up? When does he go to school or to work? He will get older in time, he or she, of course. And um, uh, is there a new neighborhood uh, being built in the city that young people move towards? Mm -hmm. So you can model all these micro aspects that are very easy to understand and to, to grasp. And when uh, combining all of this, you have the behavior at a macro level. Mm -hmm. And we believe we can use this type of approach to understand how the demand in an area will change over time. Um, not only to say how it will be in 50 years, but also how it will get there. Mm -hmm. So by understanding all of this urban and technological developments, where people choose to live and work, what are their habits and attitudes, and how they respond to policies or to water-saving strategies. And by modeling this for all the agents in the system, um, well, we can see how the system reacts as a whole. Mm -hmm. And this helps us to understand what the demand in the future can look like, which is the essential information to design a smart body for uh, a network. Mm -hmm. But it can also be uh, useful in the context of scenario studies or to understand the effectiveness of policies on water saving, uh, for instance. Okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah, these relationships, so it's like a, um, breaking some, something down into the smallest parts, the sort of atomization yes. of the problem and then building it back up yeah. again. And with, uh, with computers now, that, that's possible. Perhaps a more... Um, a more fundamental question concerning the types of data, information, and knowledge that you work with, um, the algorithms that you use, so the, the, the computer models and the algorithms that you use are, are sort of mathematical representations of the goals and problems or the policies and decisions that operators, um, um, yeah, what people want to achieve and what they've defined. 
um, and you represent that using these algorithms. Um, when you start out on a project to make a, a water system smarter, um, does the main challenge lie in understanding the problems and the priorities of the stakeholders? Or is the step of translating these questions into algorithm, algorithms the most, uh, most difficult? Well, that's a very good question. And it's, uh, uh, I don't really know the answer because uh, both have their challenges and both are what makes me enjoy my work. And I think when I started to work on these type of projects, I definitely believed the mathematical formulation and the, the, the tweaking of the algorithms were the most difficult part. And I underestimated how difficult it can be to understand what the stakeholders want, what the priorities are, what the problems are. Because often these are not clear even for them. So what does a water utility want to achieve with a sensor network, for instance? And of course, water utilities know that they want to provide a good service to customers. They know that very well. But how to measure this, it's not very straightforward. Or how to choose between conflicting objectives is also not straightforward. So. Um, we learned that it's necessary to reserve enough time for communication in this type of projects, to really sit together at the table, um, ask a lot of questions, the questions behind the questions often, uh, look at some preliminary results because then you identify, oh, I should have thought about, about that. Um, and then you can fine tune the problem. So it's really an iterative process. Mm -hmm. And once you really understood what a water utility wants to achieve, what the stakeholders want, then it's a matter of finding out which are the best functions that describe this problem and, of course, um, to the best algorithms to solve it. And uh, something as minimizing costs is often straightforward to formulate as long as we have enough, enough data. Um, but I heard uh, someone in a water utility once uh, uh, tell me or, or ask me, well, uh, I want the sensor network to understand what's inside the black box. And I was like, okay, how should I translate that into a mathematical function? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, that's what makes the job fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and well, finally, maybe you could give some, some examples of, of projects where KWR have applied all these techniques that we well, discussed about in this, uh, in this episode and well, to come up with valuable solutions. Um, yes, well, I told you before about the smart uh, bodies and the smart uh, um, s sensor networks, mm -hmm. the nervous system, and that we use optimization techniques uh, to, to build this. So uh, we made an optimization tool to bring these techniques closer to the water sector. It's called Gondwana, and we use that in uh, some projects with the water utilities. And, uh, well, we use it uh, more times uh, um, uh, up until now. But some nice examples are, for instance, the collaboration we had with Brabant Water and Dunea and uh, to create smart nervous systems for their networks. And for instance, with Dunea, we uh, looked at the network model that serves the city and surroundings of The Hague. So they're water utilities, Brabant Water. Yes, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> these are water utilities. So, and uh, one of these water utilities wanted to divide the city of The Hague into so-called district metered areas that are equipped with sensors and flow meters so you can better understand what's going on inside that system. So the question was, how many district metered areas do we need to create? How much flow meters do we need? Mm -hmm. Can we place a valve on some of these uh, boundaries? Uh, and what information will we get in return? And uh, my colleague, Karel van Laarhoven, used Gondwana to solve this problem and showed Dunea what the trade-off was between the number of sensors and the detail from measurements you could obtain, um, and how, also how to implement the solution 
in a phased manner in time because you can't just you know, snap your fingers and everything is created. It takes a lot of time to do so. And so Dunia was able to make an informed decision about how many district meter areas to create mm -hmm. and how to execute them uh, in real life. And they're currently doing that. Another example is Brabant Water. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, also together with my colleague Karel van Laarhoven and our former colleague Claudia Quintiliani. We use Gondwana to determine the number and location of pressure sensors for leakage detection. And the results showed us the added value of each extra sensor in the network and also the point where adding more sensor sensors wasn't really so effective anymore. It adds to the costs, but it wouldn't add so much to the information we gained. So at the end, Brabant Water chose a solution with less sensors they had foreseen at the start of the project, but giving them the information they wanted. Uh, and we also learned about blind spots in the network. This is areas where pressure sensors would not help us to detect leakages. And this is also very valuable information. And finally, at the moment, we're working together with Waternet and the Watergroup also to water utilities on the optimal design of the water distribution networks of uh, the city of Amsterdam and Ypres in Belgium. And we're also using Gondwana for this and really enjoying uh, sitting, well, not sitting at a table, but having virtual meetings with the water utilities <laughs> and well, really enjoying these discussions and fine tuning of the problem. And we really feel we learn so much when, when meeting these experts. So it's really nice. Yeah. In this episode, we ask Ina Vertomen the question, how can we make water systems smarter worldwide? Yeah, and I think what we've found out, what we've heard from Ina, so thank you, Ina, is uh, that you can, well, with smart and optimized systems, you can achieve more with less, basically. So, for example, uh, a better sensor ne network with more, more information um, using less sensors. And what I thought was an interesting second point is that we're doing it now, so it's not just a pipe dream or something in the future, it's something we're working on right now. So thanks a lot for your time. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to the Water Scientists. You can go to kwrwater.nl slash podcast to subscribe via your favorite podcast app. If you have a difficult water question of your own, feel free to send it to info at kwrwater.nl. Next time, we'll be back with another difficult question and a smart water scientist. Goodbye.